the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We think about the Christian experience. We try to wrap our minds around what God's grace is and what that means. And, of course, we can intellectualize this. We can attribute to grace unmerited favor. We can try to think through what this means. And yet, I have to be honest with you, in the hmm, 40 years, I guess, now that I've been a Christian, as much as I think about grace and appreciate grace and experience grace and have it touch my life on a day-to-day basis, there's an aspect of grace that I don't understand, and that's probably a good thing, because there are aspects about grace that go so far beyond, I think, our ability to intellectualize it. This holy and righteous God, in front of whose eyes we have all sinned, as we're told in Romans 3 and 23, dead in our transgressions, and yet while we were sinners, while we were yet sinners, God sent his only begotten Son to die on our behalf, that through that substitutionary work on the cross, we might not only be saved and forgiven, but reconciled unto him and experience grace in our day-to-day lives. Brian Christopher has written a new book called Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, How Your Christian Life is Really Supposed to Work. Bob, by the way, is CEO of Basic Gospel and host of the Daily Call-In radio program of the same name, Basic Gospel. And Bob, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Well, thank you, Craig. It's great to be with you. Looking forward to the time together. It's an important topic, I think, because um, believers, I think, of, of any stage in their walk with Christ need to be reminded of how incredible this grace is that God has shown toward us, and the totality of what it means as we see Christ as that bridge between death and life, and, and what it means to be reconciled unto very God himself because of his grace for us, um, I think ought to simply leave every Christian, again, no matter what stage they're at in their walk with Christ, ought to leave every Christian absolutely with their minds blown by this. Oh, Craig, absolutely. Um, Most theologians, when they get to their later stages of life, and this has been through 2,000 years of church history, you know, when asked, you know, what is the most important subject uh, about Christianity? And they always choose the word grace, um, because even if they've been Christians for 50 years, 70 years, 80 years, they feel like they've just uh, scratched the surface. And, and grace is one of these big words. I mean, Jesus Christ is full of truth and grace. Jesus Christ is grace itself in, in essence. And when you think how big Jesus is, that's when you start to get an idea of just how big this grace of God is and how 
powerful it is to make us alive together with Christ. So I think it's the most important subject, uh, most important word in the in the Bible apart from Jesus Christ and, and the word God itself. Is it a word that we need to keep coming back to again and again and again? In other words, sometimes you, you, you hear some that might suggest that this grace is a one-time experience, that God showed his grace toward mankind uh, there at Calvary. We can uh, partake of that grace in our salvation experience, and then once one once it's done, it's done. Is it, is it that way, Bob, or is it really an ongoing experience? Well, it's an ongoing experience. I say in the book, you know, once grace gets started, it never ends. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite writers is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And oh, yes. He said this, the Christian life starts with grace, it must continue with grace, and it ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. You never can get away from it. And as soon as you start getting away from, you know, the grace, grace of God, I find that's when things start to mess up. Um, I, I find that's when, you know, I get anxious, I lose peace, I've, you know, I have this restlessness inside. But every time I circle back to the grace of God and get a fresh look at what that exactly means in, in my everyday life, things start to settle down and, and, and the peace of God that passes all understanding begins to fill up all the spaces in, in your mind. So I don't think we can ever get away from grace. I, I, I know most people and many folks um, communicate it as kind of first grade stuff, but really it is it is the foundation, it's the building, it's the roof, it's it's everything about this Christian life. Your book title, uh, Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, uh, might suggest that there's a simplicity to this. And I guess it's kind of interesting because it, it it's simple to the degree that Scripture lays it out for us, and yet there's a level at which I don't know that we can ever really fully understand grace, can we? No, I don't think we can fully under, understand it because it's, it's really the essence of who Jesus is. And so we're ever going to be growing in our knowledge of, of Christ and growing in the grace of God and learning how this grace of God applies in, in everyday life. So it's a lifelong endeavor to grow in grace. And then, uh, you know, when we go to be with the Lord, when he comes back, when we all receive these resurrected bodies, we're going to stand as as testimonies to the grace of God throughout eternity. Uh, and boy, just when you think of that, then you realize just how powerful and how wonderful this grace really is. Break it down in terms of, of understanding um, what this means when we talk about grace. Um, we say unmerited favor, and uh, people might think, well, you mean like when the when the judge uh, throws out my parking ticket when I really should have gotten it anyway? Or <laughs> help us better understand that. Okay. Well, I think that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, a judge throws out our parking ticket or uh, a cop decides not to give us uh, a ticket when indeed we've been speeding, that's, that's uh, on the mercy side of the equation. Um, so that's withholding from us what we justly deserve. Grace is giving to us what we do not deserve. Um, so grace is this very present, active word in our lives. So all of us, when we come into this world, we're dead in trespasses and sins. So spiritual death is a big problem. 
we don't deserve life. There's nothing that we could do to merit life. There's nothing that we could do to bring it about for ourselves. So God, in his grace, has to reach down to us, even though we were dead, and make us alive together with Christ. So that's the first aspect of God's grace. It's, you know, when you read that uh, passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It's, it's a gift of God, not of ourselves. Well, the whole context of that passage is going from death to life, that God makes us alive together with Christ. That's grace. He gives us what we did not deserve. And then it's this life of Christ that sustains us. So we're always in his favor. Nothing can separate us from his love. Um, By his grace, he's forgiven us of all of our sins. By his grace, he teaches us to say no to sin and to live righteous, upright lives. By this grace, he builds us up, he encourages us, he gives us a brand new identity, he helps us through trials and tribulations uh, in life, and he works within us to bring about his purposes in our day-to-day experience. So grace touches every aspect of our lives. So I, I like to say that most people think of grace as a word that covers the past, But actually, it's a word that meets us at our point of need in in the present and moves us forward. So it's a forward-moving word um, tied to Jesus Christ, his spirit living within us. Um, That's just how wonderful it is. Bob Christopher with us tonight. We're looking at his latest book, Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, how your Christian life is really supposed to work. Uh, you might be a new believer in your faith and struggling through some of these questions, and, and uh, we want to encourage you to take the opportunity to get your questions answered. Maybe you've been in the, in the faith uh, walk for a lot of years, but there's still some things that you don't quite understand. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting with Bob Christopher, the book, Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, How Your Christian Life is Really Supposed to Work. Let's talk a bit about this concept that you were sharing earlier that I I think is an amazing one and will help us perhaps understand a bit more about the breadth and depth of God's love for us. Um, You talked about grace and sort of the first part idea that we see it as withholding punishment. It's an idea of something that is being kept from us. So we get the speeding ticket, but the judge decides to let us go, even though he knows, we know, yes, we broke the law, yes, we are deserving of this punishment, but regardless, the judge shows his quote-unquote grace and keeps the punishment from us. But the grace of God goes so much further than that, as you were suggesting before the break, Bob, because it's not just a matter of God keeping a rightly deserved punishment from us, but then it's what he gives to us in and through that. Oh, absolutely. It is, it is Christ himself living in us. Uh, I've defined God's grace as this, God's work in Jesus Christ to make us spiritually alive and to power, empower us to live in this world as his children. So we, we can't do that on our own, and that's, that's where I missed it for so long, Craig. I, I was trying to live out the, the Christian life with the old adage, try harder. Every time I fell on my face, I'd get up and make promises to God, and, you know, I would just give it my best shot, trying as hard as I could to live the Christian life. And the harder I, tr- I tried, the tighter sin's grip became in my life. 
And when I finally understood the grace of God as, as being more than merely a covering for the past, that's when the Christian life started to make sense. That's when I really discovered how it was supposed to work. Jesus Christ living his life in and through us. And I think that's what much of the Christian world misses as far as the gospel message is concerned. Well, let's elaborate on this point for a moment. You, you mentioned, and I think rightfully so, the, the problematic viewpoint, which unfortunately in, in modern-day pop Christianity seems to be more and more prevalent, this idea of Christianity being a, like a self-help program or a self-improvement program. We hear this kind of nonsense preached from the pulpit of, of Joel Osteen. It sounds to me oftentimes like an Anthony Robbins seminar without walking on hot coals, and, and you have to pay, of course, <laughs> or contribute to the uh, to the offering plate at some point during the service, but it it almost well it doesn't almost it outright cheapens grace and and turns what God is meaning to be this wonderful experience of as you suggest not just withholding punishment but then giving to us it, it really short circuits and robs us of the fullness of His grace when we see it as just this sort of self and help or self improvement program. Yeah. God doesn't want to make us better. He wants to make dead people alive in Christ. I mean, our our old way of life was empty. Uh, Peter uh, really nailed it in his first letter when he said that life that was handed down to us from our moms and dads is nothing but an empty life. Uh, you can slice it every way you, you can, and it still comes up empty. So God sent Jesus to put an end to that old life and to raise us up with him so we could walk in the newness of life. And that newness of life is a life lived by grace, through faith, in Jesus. Um, And we really have to learn to embrace that simplicity. And, And here's where the difficulty lies, Craig. Faith is a foreign concept to us until Christ comes in our lives. And then we start to discover what a life of faith is all about. So constantly from, you know, Genesis through Revelations, we see these reminders. Trust the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Those who put their confidence in the Lord, those who believe the Lord. That's the one thing that God is looking for from us, a heart that believes Him. And in that faith, all kinds of incredible things happen in our day-to-day lives. But why is it that so often, Bob, we wind up getting bogged down in fear and in guilt? And it, it, it becomes, I, I think, of we see this every once in a while, some of these extreme sports programs on TV. And you watch these guys going white water rafting, and all of a sudden they're heading down, and they think they're having the grand old time, and all of a sudden the, the torment of the water overcomes the, the raft and overcomes them. They might find themselves suddenly out of control and running off the edge like you're about to head you know, right over the, the edge of the, I don't know, uh, Niagara Falls or something, and, and suddenly you become absolutely overwhelmed by fear and guilt, just like the guys get overwhelmed by the torrent of water when they get out of control. How, how, do, you, how do you go about extracting yourself from that when the flow of the current is so fast? Well, Craig, that's a great uh, that's a great point, and, and boy, a beautiful an- analogy there as far as fear in our lives. Um, you know, fear has to do with punishment. That's how John connected it in his his first letter, and he says, "Perfect love casts away 
that fear. And if we're really going to grow in grace and embrace this new life that we have in Christ, we first have to settle that forgiveness issue. We have to recognize that the blood of Jesus actually did take away our sins once and for all. Um, that is, I think, one of the most critical truths that, that we need to latch onto and really take our stand upon. And that's the fact that when we receive Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins. Um, Paul said it twice, once in his book to the Ephesians, once in his letter to Colossians, that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the question is, are you in Christ? And if you answer yes, then you can ask, well, what do you have according to these passages? Well, it says redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the question that follows that is, do you really believe it? Do you really believe that right now, at this very moment, you have forgiveness of sins? And that becomes the real issue. If I struggle right there, that's when fear can take hold of my life. And we're going to pause on that point. When we come back, I want you to share with our listeners the uh, uh, Benaka story. I think it'll, it'll paint a nice picture that will ideally illustrate the challenge here, particularly in that sense where sometimes we struggle with the notion that his grace is insufficient for us because we see ourselves as being unworthy and unlovable. And there's nothing worse when we end up getting caught. We'll come back to more of the conversation with Bob Christopher as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Simple Gospel, Simply Grace. Bob Christopher, my guest on this segment of Lifeline. And uh, Bob, as we talk about the struggles that we often have with this notion of uh, feeling unworthy, unlovable, sometimes uh, just feeling uncomfortable with the fact that we feel this sense of fear and guilt. Uh, you've got a great story in the book about uh, your experience as a young man uh, with um, Benaka, which I have to be honest with you, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, I remember that. I didn't realize they still made it. <laughs> but tell us a bit about that story. I think it, it ideally helps illustrate this point. Well, well, Craig, it, it was uh, an experience in seventh or eighth grade. I got involved in a shoplifting gang, and we would go into drugstores, and, and we would just steal things, things that we didn't need. And one of those things that we stole quite often uh, was this little breath freshener spray called Banaka. Well, one night, uh, Friday night, I spent the night with my friend David, and we went out and went to one of those stores, and we stole some banaca, and we stole a lock. Why? It just for the challenge of it, I guess. And uh, so we came back home, and, you know, I went home the next day, and as, as things would have it, David's mom went into his room and started cleaning up, and, he, and, and she found the lock, and she asked David, uh, where'd you get this? And uh, he said, well, we stole it. And, you know, he just, he just, he just caved like any person would. And, uh, you know, as moms do, um, you know, she dug a little deeper and, and David told the whole story about, you know, Bob actually stole it and we got Banaka too. And so she, uh, you know, tried to figure out what to do. And then she picked up the phone and called my mom and uh, that next Monday, I was delivering papers. Uh, I had skipped out on my band band rehearsal. I was a truant, so, you know, I'm a thief and a truant. And, 
you know, mom's not real pleased with me. And uh, she says, get in the car. And I'm like, no, it's a beautiful day. And finally she says, Banaka. And I was just done. I unraveled right then and there and knew I had been caught. And, you know, I could just imagine the punishment that was coming my way. And uh, mom and dad decided they were going to take me back to every store that I had stolen something from. And I was going to get in front of the manager and confess what I had done. And they were going to leave my punishment in these managers' hands. And fortunately for me, they were lenient and just required that I pay back, uh, pay them the money for the things that I I stole, which I did. Um, But that didn't relieve my guilt because I knew, you know, my sin held something with God. And at that point, I just walked on eggshells wondering what God was going to do with me. I knew punishment was just around the corner. And that fear just overcame me in such a way that every time I sinned, I felt Jesus left me. And so I had this formula. I'd confess. I would, would, would ask God to forgive. And then I would ask Christ to come back in my life. And I probably prayed 500 different times during my teenage years for Jesus to come back and live in my life because I didn't know what he had actually accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. And finally, I went to a Bible study, and the teacher started explaining Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead and your transpasses and sins, he made you alive together with Christ. He forgave all your sins. And that forgiveness just poured over me, just washed over me, and finally I rested in the finished work of Jesus. And that fear of punishment went away because I knew Jesus had taken my punishment for me. And in exchange for that, he gave me his righteousness. That's a pretty good deal. That's what grace is all about. God giving to us what we do not deserve. But because he loves us so much, he was willing to send Jesus to take our punishment for us so that we could stand in his presence as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. Let's get to some calls. We're going to head over to uh, Lee in Palo Alto. Lee, come on in with your comment or question for Bob Christopher. Well, the Banaka story was wonderful. I think uh, probably a lot of people could identify with it. I sure could. I remember beating myself up for years. But one thing that I wanted to ask, and I don't know how to ask it without sounding kind of like uh, expecting too much um, or, or putting a demand on God, which would be like, a sin in of itself but my question would be when you know you're forgiven when you know that it's finished how do you um, somehow experience God's grace not, not like the everyday grace where we have our health we have the sun we have our needs and whatever but God's unmerited favor on a day to day basis with him actually walking with us um, I I don't know if I asked that right. I just, I'm yeah. not talking well, I think about I, I'm, I'm following what you're saying there, uh, Lee, as, as far as how we experience the grace of God. I, I think the first way we experience it is, is, is by resting in His finished work. You know, mo- most of us are, are tense inside, we're anxious inside, because we're not sure if God really loves us or not, or if God has forgiven us or not. And when we finally come to 
that point and recognize that the work has been finished, we experience this sense of rest uh, inside of us. So that's the first way we experience it. And then we experience it um, by the Word of God becoming strong in our lives and, and us learning to say no to the temptations uh, of, of this world and the temptations of sin. We recognize that what the world has to offer is just empty. And so I think we see a, a sense of victory in our lives as far as the world is concerned. And then I think the third way that we experience the grace of God is is by really getting to know the heart of the Father and learning to see the world through His eyes and people through His eyes. And we get so caught up on in morality and trying to make the world a better place but God sees people's hearts and he and he sees people in one of two ways you either belong to him or you're still lost and dead in sin and when we see it from God's perspective then our hearts start to melt and we want to reach out with that gospel message so the the grace just gives us um, I, I think deeper insight into the very heart of of God the Father and what His love is all about for this world and the people that we shoulder uh, with every single day of our lives. Does that help, Lee? Yeah, it does. It helps greatly. I, I remember in the Old Testament where you had these people that poured out their hearts to God, like Hannah, who couldn't have the child, and, and when she was in the temple with Eli, and, and she just poured out her heart, and, and God gave her the grace of answering that prayer. And I think the third one, because I, I know in my case, I, I know I'm saved, and I'm in the Bible often and around other believers, but I want to see the, the, the Holy Spirit type, um, uh, how could I put it, like answer to prayer more than just, in, in our area, maybe it's just this area, it seems like there's a lot of Christians, but we're kind of impotent. Well, I think you're I think you're right because um, you know our greatest asset, as far as believers are concerned, is is a knowledge of God. We really know what God is like because Jesus Christ has has made that known to us. You know, when we see Jesus, we see the Father, and so as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, and as we grow in our knowledge of who He is, I think we're going to see our hearts melt toward the world in a way that we want to reach out and, and connect those people to the love of Christ just as we have been connected to the love of Christ. So just uh, just make it your prayer that, Lord, I want to grow in your grace. I want to grow in, in the knowledge of who you are. And I guarantee you that's a prayer he will answer. And you will see that being answered in time. Very helpful. All right. We appreciate your call tonight, Lee. I guess part of this too is 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 the ongoing struggle that we have with the flesh, Bob. Um, we we at a level because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit recognize that we are in need of of forgiveness. Um, we recognize that we have sinned and offended a holy and righteous God, and and yet it's difficult for us sometimes. Once having had His grace extended to us, to fully accept that, embrace that, and I guess at certain levels um, even learn uh, the concept of forgiving ourselves as much as God has forgiven us. I, I got a kick in your book. You make reference in this. I think shows the the level at which mankind struggles with this. That Stanford University here in our backyard actually has something they call the forgiveness project. 
Yes, yes, they do, and and they're trying to figure out if forgiveness is really an essential part of of well being and health and uh, you know normal relationships, and they're discovering that that's that that's the case. Um, but but they spend a lot of time on this idea of forgiving ourselves, and, and it's interesting when you when you scour the Word of God. There, there's no place there where God says you need to forgive yourself. What he does say is stand firmly in the forgiveness that I've given you in Christ. And when you recognize that, then you're able to let go of the past. You're able to let go of those things that you've been dragging around in life for years and years and years. So when when we stand firmly in what Christ has accomplished, that's when we can really forgive ourselves and let go of the past and fully embrace um, the resurrected Christ here and now. Bob, we sure appreciate the time and the book, Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, How Your Christian Life is Really Supposed to Work. The new book, by the way, published by Harvest House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com and uh, Bob's website, too, simplegospelsimplygrace.com. And there again is Bob Christopher, host of the call-in radio program, Basic Gospel. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Crown Forum, the publisher, the author, Ann Coulter. The title, Demonic, How the Liberal Mob is Endangering America. And Ann, as always, a thrill to have you on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Boy, lots to talk about in in, uh, what is now, no doubt, destined to become number eight of your New York Times bestsellers. This time around, it's interesting because as much, Ann, as this seems to be a new topic, you're really dealing with an old mentality that has roots that go back over centuries, really. Um, yes, I compare the French, I trace it back to the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And yeah, I, I think the, the re- division between modern liberalism and modern conservatism as we think of them um, was, was the, the very different, um, were the different revolutions from the American and the French, and they're often thrown together just because they happen to have, occur around the same time. And also I think liberals are trying to hide the French Revolution from us because it is, they're the heirs to the French Revolution. It's the revolt of a mob, an atheistic, violent, um, pointless revolution that led directly into the arms of a dictator, Napoleon. Um, just just wanton violence, desecration of Notre Dame Cathedral. They turned it into the Temple of Reason, um, as liberals often do, saying they are the ones who believe in reason, um, as opposed to God. But uh, they ended up they ended up with neither reason nor God. And amazing how that is. You know, I've been watching a, a series that outlines the rise of Nazi Germany. So often folks focus on uh, September 1st, 39, the start of World War Two. But a study of all of the events that folded into the rise of Hitler coming to power and the way he was able to, to literally mesmerize an entire nation is is an eye-opener and I think a troubling one because we see a lot of very dangerous parallels between what Hitler was able to do in Nazi Germany in the late 20s, early 1930s, and quite frankly, a lot of stuff that I'm seeing going on in the liberal establishment in America today. Well, again, I think it's all from the French Revolution. It was the French Revolution that established the pattern that would be... Um, 
mimicked to some extent in Nazi Germany, uh, very, very closely in Russia, in China, in Vietnam, uh, in Venezuela. It was, it was a revolution based on the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, a, a paranoid hypochondriac who believed that a group of elites would be able to um, um, grasp, understand what the general will was of society, what we all believed, and they would impose it on the people for the good of mankind. Uh, and you do have that mentality and, and always have in, in the American left that, that they know how to run things better. They're Rhodes Scholars. They went to Harvard. And we know you don't want your health care changed, American people. But don't worry. I figured it out. My roommate and I worked it out on paper, and it's going to work fantastically well. Um, there are always promises of utopia, uh, such as uh, a free health care system that will actually save money. Um, and... And, and the way the arguments are made and the way the, a crowd reacts, um, crowds, I, I, I rely a lot on the, the social philosopher Gustave Le Bon, who was, I think, not coincidentally French. He lived about 100 years after the French Revolution. He must have had that revolution in mind um, when he discovered the concept of, of crowd psychology. He's considered the father of groupthink um, for noticing that a man in a crowd behaves and thinks differently when he's in a crowd than when he's isolated and by himself. A man in a crowd will lose some of his intelligence. He can't understand reason. Um, a crowd can't understand reason. Um, pictures are better than words. Don't try to use logic with a crowd. Um, demonize the enemy and, and turn your leaders into messiahs. Well, you see all of that with, with the left in America, um, from FDR, JFK, uh, Bill Clinton, Obama. They're, they're worshipped uh, in ways that no Republican, even much better presidents, are worshipped. I mean, the closest I could think of from our side, and this is more our fond memories in, in retrospect, was of Ronald Reagan. Well, when he was president, he wasn't even the most popular conservative. It was Jerry Falwell, followed by William F. Buckley, and coming in third, it was Ronald Reagan. Throughout his um, two terms, he was constantly attacked uh, by conservatives from the right, uh, holding his feet to the fire. Uh, meanwhile, both Clinton and Obama, um, as I cite in my book, uh, you know, liberal women go around talking about how they have sex dreams about them. It goes back to the father of the Democratic Party, Andrew Jackson. I, I have a quote from um, John Meekham's book on Andrew Jackson from a, a contemporaneous newspaper account, how the crowds thronged around him like children to a father. <laughs> um, these Democrats always treat their leaders that way, while at the same time demonizing their enemies. Um, which manifestly <laughs> happens uh, with the way they talk about Republicans. Um, and, and, I mean, the things that were said about George Bush when he was president, and not just Bush, but Cheney and Rumsfeld and Karl Rove, um, it's just this horrible, monstrous cabal. Um, the way liberals uh, talk in images with, you know, Paul Ryan is putting together this plan to reform Social Security, which is bankrupting the country. It is a fact. Um, his arguments are based on reason, whether you like his plan or not. And Democrats respond by showing a, a commercial of a Paul Ryan lookalike pushing an old lady off her wheelchair um, in a wheelchair off a cliff. Um, this is how Democrats talk. They use repetition, affirmation. It's, it's, it's straight out of the groupthink playbook, and it works because the Democrats voters um, are highly susceptible to groupthink. 
Well, you know, one of the examples of that that comes to mind, and I recall leading up to the election uh, two, two and a half years ago, there was so much talk about uh, bringing the American involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq to a close. And as you recall, just prior to the economic collapse, the big uh, campaign plank that uh, Obama was running on when that was the Republicans had no plan for extraction. And, and yet, amazingly, here we are two and a half years later, uh, and all of a sudden, all of the Democrat war protesters were so angry at the Democrat, the Republicans for getting us into this mess, they've all just disappeared. Yes, that's right. That's right. No, and the, the slogans are a very big part of, of the Democratic Party's technique and a big part of groupthink. Um, the slogans don't have to make sense. It's, it's, it's helpful if they rhyme, but they must be short and sort of seem superficially appealing. I have about a half a page of liberal slogans in my book. Um, you know, you can't hug a child with nuclear arms. Um, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids have you killed today? Uh, think green. Um, yes, we can. Uh, Bush lied, kids died. These are just a few off the top of my head. Um, I'm reading them off my neighbor's car here. Uh, and, and meanwhile, you can't think of the slogans Republicans have. It's, it's become kind of a joke with Republicans that we're responding to hectoring by standing there with um, you know, a flow ch- chart and a pointer trying to explain what's happening here. One of my friends recently told me she was, I guess, I don't know where she was, I, said, I assume it was in Florida, um, during the 2000 election recount, as it's called in Florida, the attempt of, of Gore to steal the election. And she went to, you know, a conservative rally um, against <laughs> allowing selective recounts in Florida, and she said the Republican who was leading them, you know, stands up with a bullhorn, sort of gets the concept of what you do at a rally, but couldn't come up with a chant. So it was always, you couldn't really understand what he was saying, but we oppose the recounting the ballots in selective, selective counties because it violates the Constitution. The crowd is standing there wondering what they're supposed to chant back. <laughs> we can't get the hang of it. <laughs> well, they have it down to a science, to be sure. And, you know, I, I, I got a big uh, laugh one point in the book, how the liberal mob is endangering America. Uh, you opine a very, uh, you, you point out rather a very uh, harsh reality, and that is, you know, when is the last time you heard a group of conservatives threatening to leave the country if a Democrat was elected? Oh, that's right. And the citizens' arrest, the pie throwing, the um, just, just smashing Starbucks windows. There is no violence on the right, even even as liberals, um, the mainstream media were denouncing the Tea Parties as a mob for the last two years. The only violence. At, at either the conservative town halls or, or the Tea Parties was committed by liberals against the conservatives. Um, these liberals are constantly staging citizens' arrests, making spectacles of themselves, standing up during conservative speeches, even Sarah Palin's speech to the nation, introducing herself to the nation at the Republican National Committee. You have two liberal lunatics, Obama bundlers, by the way. Um, these weren't just random, you know, nuts who happened to stroll into the Republican National Convention. No, one of them had worked for, on Jerry Brown's gubernatorial campaign. Um, I, in fact, I think she headed it. But in any event, big Obama bundler. And these women rip off their clothes and they're wearing silly costumes underneath with placards denouncing Sarah Palin and start walking to- toward the stage, screaming at Sarah Palin. Um, you may not have heard about that until you read my book because only two newspapers in the country reported it. So, you know, we're under these constant, not only groupthink in terms of the way liberals argue on TV and how they understand arguments, but groupthink does sometimes break out into a literal mob engaging in violence. 
Um, and just like the French Revolution, you're never really sure what the point is, what they want. Why were these women so angry at Sarah Palin? Why were those, those liberals smashing Starbucks windows in Seattle when some bankers came to town? What is their point? It doesn't really matter. It's always the threat of violence and the citizens' arrest. And what happened to Rupert Mur- Murdoch just this week um, when he's testifying in Britain um, over something rather silly? But, of course, someone tries to put um, a pie of shaving cream in his face. Yeah, and again, Someone just a liberal. Yeah, and 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 you know, again, it goes back to this idea, as you suggest. You know, this whole this whole mob mentality, the group think, which in reality is not really thinking at all. Because if they were thinking, they would realize how outlandishly ridiculous some of the positions that they take or really are. Yes, that's right. Um, no, it's 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 an emotional reaction because you can't reason with a mob, um, which is why the conclusion of my book is, is well, I, the point is for, for Americans to wake up and recognize um, and notice the groupthink and the mob psychology. Um, you know, you can turn on MSNBC any hour of the day. It's like the video illustration of Gustave Le Bon's book um, of, of, of crowd psychology, how they talk and their slogans. Um, but also to notice that for 100 years in this country, all the political violence has come from the left. In 200 years of the nation's existence, every political assassination attempt that was for a political reason, and it wasn't just some lunatic who thought he was, um, you know, King Edward of England and Andrew Jackson owed him money, um, a political assassination attempt on a president, every single one was committed by a liberal. Um, at every single Tea Party in town hall, every act of violence was a liberal. Every citizen's arrest is committed by a liberal. Every storming of a congressional hearing, of a conservative speaking, of a, of a, Republic, of a, of a party's political convention is committed by a liberal. Well, I, re- I recall and a number are always dangerous things. They have got to be smashed. I, I recall a number of years ago, weren't you on the receiving end? You were speaking at a, a university somewhere, and you were on, I think, the receiving end of an attempted uh, pie-throwing thing. When was the last time you heard about anybody going up to Keith Oberman or or Chris Matthews and attempting to pie them in the face. Exactly. It will never happen. It will never, ever happen. Yet and still, Keith Oberman, during the 2008 um, party conventions, Republican Party convention in particular, Keith Oberman refused to leave New York and go out to Minnesota to attend to cover the Republican National Convention unless they doubled his security. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, I'm going to have to run. Hey, I appreciate the time as always, Anne. We'll look forward to visiting with you again next time. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Take care. There's Anne Coulter, the new book, Demonic, How the Liberal Mob is Endangering America. The book, again, is published by Crown Forum, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, as Anne mentioned, in fact, the New York Times number one bestseller list. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.